Hello and welcome to the Family Tree Magazine podcast. It's the monthly show from America's number one genealogy magazine. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. We've got an eclectic mix of topics for you today. We're going to start things off in our featured segment with Courtney Henderson. Now, she is the digital editor at Family Tree Magazine, and she recently published an article called 14 Unusual Records for Finding Female Ancestors, and she's going to share several of those with us today. In the DNA Deconstructed segment, Diane Southerd, your DNA guide, is back to help us unravel some of the mysteries behind genetic communities. In our Best Genealogy website segment, Dutch genealogist John Buren is going to be here. He's the author of the article Going Dutch, which appears in the March and April 2020 issue of the magazine. And today he's going to help you navigate the world of free websites that will help you with your Dutch research. From the editor's desk, Rachel Fountain is back sharing some of her favorite genealogy and history social media accounts on platforms like Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and YouTube. Before we get to all that, we want to hear from you, and we're going to do that up next in Tree Talk. We love hearing from our readers over at Facebook, and recently we heard from Holly Simpson Corley. This is what she posted. She says, I absolutely enjoy your podcast. Look forward to new episodes. Hi, Holly. Thank you so much for tuning in. She says, on your latest podcast, you mentioned a success story and asked for others to share theirs. I have a great one for you. I am a self-made genealogist and have many years of research and skills under my belt. Coming from a family of members who did not like to share stories or talk about memories, in a way, made me want to search and get to know each and every one of my ancestors. I have a great aunt whose name is Elizabeth Simpson. She was always a mystery to me. She was a school teacher and she never married. I do not know why, but I always felt drawn to her. All of my family, as well as myself, lived in or around Beaufort, North Carolina. Once I married, I moved 1,900 miles away to Texas and visited home often. On one of my visits back home, I found a place called the History Place in a nearby town of Moorhead City, North Carolina. Inside this building, they have exhibits of local history. And off in a room toward the back of this museum, I found a research library filled with local records and pictures and books. The man in charge at the time when I walked in was so sweet and welcoming. So much more than what you expect from a small town. He was so helpful and knew many of the family names I was talking to him about. Somewhere in our conversation, he proceeds to tell me about some filing cabinets they have. Inside these filing cabinets are local surnames, and anyone can come and add to or make copies. Wow, I thought, how neat. I wish every town had a place like this. Of course, I was eager to look, and what I found still blows my mind to this day. I don't know why I always felt drawn to my great aunt. And I don't know why I decided to walk into this museum in a town I was born and raised in. Nobody treats their hometown as a vacation spot. But I did. And I found those filing cabinets. I found a folder for the surname Simpson. And I found an unmarked envelope with a letter inside telling my aunt's story. Someone who knew her and loved her wanted everyone else to know her as well. Even though she never had children, 
her story will be told in this family and passed along as long as I'm alive. And that's from Holly Simpson Corley. So I've got to read this to you. She sent the note that she found in the filing cabinet. You can see a picture of it in the show notes. It says, Miss Elizabeth Simpson. It says that Miss Elizabeth Simpson was the daughter to Edward Simpson and his wife, Julie. Elizabeth was the oldest of three children born to this couple. In the census of 1900, Elizabeth was nine years of age. Her sister, Myrtle V., was six, and her brother, Alonzo T., was four. Elizabeth Simpson attended St. Paul's School under the watchful eye of Miss Nanny Jeffrey. Under her tutorship, Elizabeth was an apt student, and later she secured a position as a teacher in this well-known private school of learning. When St. Paul's closed its doors, Elizabeth had to secure other means of support. She attended a college in Greensboro to update her teaching certificate. After achieving this goal, she taught in the primary department of the public schools until her retirement. Note, the above information was given me by Mrs. Hazel Harris, who was cousin to Elizabeth, Hazel's mother being a sister to Elizabeth's father, Edward Simpson. It goes on to say, I remember Miss Elizabeth from Sunday school at the First Baptist Church on Ann Street in Beaufort, North Carolina. She was always there every Sunday for Sunday school and church services each Sunday, carrying her Bible, probably this same Bible. Oh, makes you wonder if this note was originally in that Bible. It says she taught Sunday school classes mostly and was head of the BYPU for years, oft times leading her pupils into the sanctuary for services afterwards. Although Elizabeth never married, she was devoted to her brothers and sisters' children, particularly Patsy, daughter of Myrtle, and Irene, daughter of Alonzo. She took particular interest in the children she tutored in school and those she taught in Sunday school, and she always encouraged them to make the most of their potentials. My most vivid picture of Miss Elizabeth is seeing her walking to and from the church with her Bible always with her and seeing her sit in the same pew during the services for many years. The Miss Elizabeths of this world should never be forgotten, for she was a very special person in my book. And it was written by Thelma Paik Simpson in 1990. Thank you so much for sharing this, Holly, and it makes you hope that there's a lot more Thelmas in the world to help capture the stories of all of us. Thanks for sharing. And if you want to share with us, head to at Family Tree Magazine at Facebook and post your story. You might just hear it right here on the podcast. Researching our female ancestors poses some unique challenges depending on the time frame and the location where they lived. Well, here to share resources for finding the women in your family tree is Courtney Henderson. She's the digital editor at Family Tree Magazine. Hi, Courtney. Hi, Lisa. It's great to have you here. Um, I noticed you have this article. It's, in, it's an online premium article. It's called 14 Unusual Records for Finding Female Ancestors. And in this, you highlight record collections that are really specific and they're really unique. Uh, and I'm thinking many of them may not be on our listeners' radar. How did this article come about? Well, there's always demand for resources for finding female ancestors. As most of our listeners know, that can provide somewhat of a challenge. So I started by looking at our female ancestors cheat sheet and looked into some of those resources 
And the editor, Andrew Cook, asked me to go a little bit deeper with some suggestions. And that really set me on a path to really dive in and try to give our readers resources that may they may not have otherwise considered. So when he asked me to write this feature article, the very first thing that popped into my head is this quote we've all heard, and it's that well-behaved women seldom make history. And you see it on t-shirts and bumper stickers, and it's sort of, we take it as a, hey, you know, be loud, be heard, we are women, hear us roar. And as I was researching that quote, I discovered that it's actually misconstrued. And the author was Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, and she is a professor of women's studies at Harvard. And she wrote that back in the 70s as a lament, as a way to say, you know, look, women, they're everywhere. And Mm -hmm. even though they were covered in documents and, and put in under their husband's names, that they were actually everywhere and very involved in lots of different things. And so that sort of shaped my direction for this article. Let's let's go to where they were and what they were doing and and how to find them that way because we can't look at the church records necessarily or the census records. We have to think outside the box. I totally agree. You know, and I think it's interesting. It's um, you know, any of us who've gotten a little older and maybe a little bit wiser realize being loud isn't always the way we make a difference. And in fact, I look at my female ancestors And some of the quiet ones made some of the biggest marks in our family in terms of the steadfastness, the hard work, the the children that they raised, and they just shaped the next generations. So that's why I think this article is is so great, because you've got some very unique, uh, somewhat unusual collections that people can look to after they've tried to scour these, the census, like you say, and the vital records and things. And sometimes, you know, our females are just mentioned under their husband's name. But let's talk about some of these other unusual places where people might be able to go. And if they're lucky enough, find one of their ancestors. What's one of the ones that really surprised you and just you thought was really unusual? Well, I being an amateur genealogist myself, I had actually never heard of the eugenics records office. And that whole movement was new to me. So I spent Mm -hmm. some time looking into that. And the sheer amount of data that they collected on people is astounding. And that was one of the sources that if somehow you had an ancestor involved in that, you will know everything from her eye color to her height to her her line and, you know, her family going back. And they really just gathered a lot of data on these people. Now, for anybody listening who isn't familiar with eugenics, of course, that was a progressive movement in the early 20th century, where they thought they were somehow improving the the world by focusing specifically on genetic groups. And they they really targeted people who um, had impairments. And it was it turned out to be a really, really bad idea. Right? But you're right, they collected mass amounts of data. So what kinds of things might a person learn if by chance one of their female ancestors was a part of this? So this is just a partial list that I found of the data that they and statistics that they collected. And what I mentioned in the article is everything from 
diseases and illnesses, surgical operations, religious affiliation, cause of death, even eye, hair, and skin color. So you say here in the article, it says a list of collections uh, and institutions that hold them. There is a place where you can go online and find this. Um, it's library.cshl.edu, and there's a some extensions. So I'll have that in the show notes for everybody so they can kind of check that out. Lisa, I would just um, add that a lot of this is just going to take some good old-fashioned detective work. And what's not, you know, nice now as a genealogist is so many records are available to us online to search or browse. A lot of my resources mentioned are not. You may get stopped at the state level and then have to go and search at a library or right. or city level. I, I guess I'm trying to tell listeners, don't be discouraged. If you, you may be able to find a direction online, but just keep digging. And you never know what gems are in the library, even right next door. Exactly. And, and we start online because that helps us figure out where they are so we can go off-roading, right? <laughs> so, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, another one that I noticed here was notices repudiating wives' debts. What was this? Yes, that was also a new discovery for me. And the article, the Boston Globe article that I mentioned, is hilarious if anyone gets a chance to read it. It's basically just about women who are maybe just fed up with their husbands or looking for a way out. You know, divorce was kind of controversial back then, and they would just leave. So the husbands would get mad and post in the paper, I'm not going to pay any of the debts that she incurs. And that that practice started back in the 1600s and went all the way to the 1980s. It's completely pointless from a legal standpoint, but it's, I don't know, kind of entertaining and kind of interesting because that is one of the examples where a female ancestor may be mentioned by name. And you mentioned here that there are female clubs, organizations, sisterhoods. Of course, the YWCA was something many people were involved in. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I actually um, was told by my mom that my grandmother was an Eastern star, and I didn't really know what that was. I knew it was sort of like the Masons. So that spurred me to sort of research, research that branch of unusual records. And there was just a great movement to belong to these clubs, I'd say probably starting in the turn of the 19th century, you know, women felt that they had a moral duty to sort of sway public policy and just point government and and the world at large in the right direction. Mm -hmm. So it was very, very popular. And, And to me, it was also a way for women to kind of have an excuse to get out of the house, be like we do now, right? We like to go have girls night outs. And that was just the turn of the century version of a girls night out is to join these clubs and have a purpose and feel like a contributing member of society. They were working on issues that were that mattered to them, things like child labor and that type of thing. And and I imagine too, you know, so many of our ancestors immigrated here, many of them were kind of disconnected from their normal family group. This was kind of a way to build new family here in the United States. Right. And I love the National Association of Colored Women. I love their motto was lifting as we climb. And as I was researching that group, it was just so inspiring. Their members included Harriet Tubman. And you just had these groups, like you mentioned, with immigrants and minorities, just this group of women speaking for those people that didn't necessarily always have a voice. 
if you've been having challenges finding some of your female ancestors in your family tree, well, you know, who knows, they may be kind of, in a way, hiding in one of these really unusual and unique collections. And Courtney, thank you so much for kind of pointing us in the right direction and and helping us track them down. We appreciate it. Thanks, Lisa. If you have tested with Ancestry DNA, then you've probably heard about genetic communities. And if you've been wondering how you can use these migration groups and communities, well, today's DNA Deconstructed segment can help. Diane Southard, your DNA guide, is here to answer that question. Welcome back to the show, Diane. Thank you, Lisa. Always a pleasure. Well, there's a lot of information I know wrapped up in our ethnicity results at Ancestry DNA, and I'd love to have you break it down for us. So the folks who are listening, how can they use migration groups and communities to further their genealogical research? Right. Well, so you're right. We could talk for hours about ethnicity results. There's so many questions surrounding them. Are they worthwhile? Are they not? Are they helpful? Are they not? And, you know, there, there, there isn't a right answer, actually. It, it really depends on, on who you are and where you're from. So, for example, if you're um, an, an average person with ancestors from Western Europe, you're going to have more success with your ethnicity results overall than if you're from Asia. It, it's just a, the nature of the current composition of our databases. So yeah, it definitely depends on who you are and where your ancestors are from, uh, if you're going to have a lot of success with these ethnicity results. So the databases are just, it's whoever's tested, right? That's the size uh, of the pool. Yeah, okay. Exactly. So it's whoever's tested and it's whoever the company has reached out to to build their database. So there's the commercial part of the database where it's regular people who've tested, but the research part of the database contains some people who have tested if, if you've consented to research, but it also contains a lot more DNA samples from other sources, people that they've reached out to or um, partnerships that they've made with different um, ethnic groups. So yeah, there's two different sides to the database, but the research part is what really fuels all the information we're getting. So we want the companies to do more research because that means better data for us. So a, a big part of that research is, at Ancestry at least, is in these what they call genetic communities. So there's actually two kinds of DNA technology at play in your ethnicity results. Um, The one that I was kind of just talking about or or alluding to is the idea that if we test a bunch of people from a certain area, we can get an idea of what their genetics looks like, and then we can compare you to that profile and determine if that's where you're from. So we call those reference populations, and our companies are working hard to to beef up those reference populations. That's, That's one side. These communities, though, aren't based on that technology. They're not based on finding a bunch of people who are from a certain place and and developing a genetic profile for that place. It's based on the matching technology. So with the genetic communities, it's like, okay, Lisa, I can see that you're matching a whole bunch of people that have their family trees from Western Ohio, for example. Mm -hmm. And so that means that you're sharing DNA with a bunch of people whose genealogy says they're from Western Ohio. So that's different than going to Western Ohio and trying to figure out what the genetic profile is of that place. So it's a different technology. It's actually more accurate. So it's it's a, a way that you can see the migration patterns of your ancestors within the last 200 years. 
And so it sounds like you're talking about the trees that are online at Ancestry. So that that data is really valuable then in terms of how they're merging it together with the DNA results and kind of showing how this looks geographically. Yeah, absolutely. And so a lot of people get nervous when we say that we're using trees at Ancestry to fuel this technology. Right. You know, they're not always right. That's the beauty, though, of the merging of the technology, because the DNA really does a double check. So Hmm. if we've got, let's say, 50 people who are all claiming ancestry from Western Ohio, and we're looking at their DNA, and three of them don't share any DNA with all of these people who are from Western Ohio, then we call them an outlier. Something's not right, right? Either their genealogy is incorrect and, and that's usually what, what happens. And so the algorithm, the science of it says, well, these people are outliers. We're not going to include them in our algorithm. And they're, they're sliced out, essentially. And so is this kind of communicating to us not only where they're maybe originally from 200 years ago, but where, where they settled as well? Yeah, definitely. So, so it's, a, it's really, really powerful. In fact, I've never seen anyone as part of a genetic community who doesn't belong so, well, in your regular ethnicity results, you know, I could tell you that you're 12% Italian and you could not have an Italian ancestor for tons of generations and maybe I'm wrong about that, right? But these communities, I have literally never seen anyone who's been placed in a community who doesn't belong there. They're very, very accurate and, and they do describe your ancestor's location in the last 200 years, which is that sweet spot in genealogy. That's what we're all trying to, to map out, right, over the last 200 years mm-hmm. for the most part. And so my final question would be, can we expect changes in this? You know, sometimes we see revisions in the results that are coming out. Um, would we expect to see that in the communities as well? So that's a good question. And, and I think what you'll see is you probably will not drop out of a community, mm-hmm. but you will be included in more communities as time goes on. Well, it's a fascinating subject, and uh, you wrote all about it in the December 2019 issue of Family Tree Magazine. It's the DNA Q&A. It's called Ancestry DNA Genetic Communities. So if you want to read more about what Diane has to say about that, check it out. Diane, it's always good to talk to you. I'm sure we will talk again soon here on the podcast. If you have Dutch ancestors, well, there's very good news. Millions of free genealogical records are coming online. But of course, there's also an awful lot offline. Well, in this Best Genealogy website segment here at Family Tree Magazine podcast, John Boren, author of the article Going Dutch, which appears in the March and April 2020 issue of Family Tree Magazine, he's here to tell us a lot more about Dutch research. Hi, John. Hello, Lisa. So good to have you here. The article, boy, is just a treasure trove for anybody who wants to do Dutch research. Before we jump into some of the best websites, could you kind of give us a starting point? How are the laws in the Netherlands? What are the rules around privacy and availability of records? What can we expect when we're going to do Dutch research? Well, when I speak with people from different countries, they always are very thrilled when they find out that they have Dutch ancestors, because in their opinion, in the Netherlands, everything is online. And you can find so many uh, records that you use for your genealogical research that 
it almost seems like everything is online and it's not. I always say, yes, we have a lot online and that's primarily because our government is a, is a big advocate of, of open access and public access for everybody. But that doesn't mean that everything is online. Um, neither it is in, in other countries. So you, you have to keep in mind that there is a lot, but not everything. Exactly. You do have five different big websites that you've talked about here. And it sounds like there are some that are kind of national in scope. So those might be a great place to start. But there are definitely websites that will help us go deeper. I'd love to have you start by uh, talking about open archives, because it sounds like that's one that kind of is very broad in nature. Correct. Um, I think a lot of people know We Was We. It's used by a lot of genealogical um, uh, researchers uh, all over the world. Um, in my article, I talk about open archives because I think it's important to have two different databases on a national level. Both are. Both have more than 200 million records in their database, uh, all kinds of records. What I want people to understand is that open archives is a good place to start it uh, helps you to find people in the Netherlands with using wildcards. Um, there is also the uh, option to use two different names. So you can, for example, look for a couple. And that helps you a lot with finding the correct records. And you mentioned wildcards, which I know we can use at Ancestry. Uh, give us maybe just one example. What's a wildcard that might really help us get better results? Well, as in all kinds of languages, you have different ways of spelling names, for example. And if you are looking for a particular name and you're not absolutely sure how it was written, or you know for sure that it has been written in different ways, then you might want to use wildcards, for example, an asterisk, um, because that will take the place of a couple of characters. So you can start with what you know, or you can end with what you know, and use the asterisk just to have different options available. Fantastic. Now, I know we have an English speaking audience, and they're going to be wondering, oh, my gosh, if I go to these websites, am I going to be able to read them in English? What What's the answer to that? Well, the, there are a lot of websites in the Netherlands that have an English interface. So that means that you can use the, the database without having trouble with understanding what the database is about or what you have to do. Um, there is, however, a point where you will find information in Dutch simply because records are in Dutch or the information taken from records by volunteers while indexing is in Dutch. So, yes, you will find Dutch information. And um, I think that if you know a few Dutch words that help you understand the basic records like uh, birth records, marriage records and, and death records, you get uh, quite far with understanding what the record is about. However, if you have records that are handwritten page after page in Dutch, yeah, it can be a little bit complicated to understand. You talked about open archives and we was we as being national in scope. So what types of records are we talking about there? Are we looking at the civil registration? Are there other types that we should be looking to the national level in order to obtain them? 
the fact that these databases are on a national level is more that they provide information from all kinds of towns and cities and all kinds of provinces. So it's not like the information was created on a national level, but their, their scope is national. So they offer what a lot of other archives also offer, like civil registration, population administration, notarial records, military records, all kinds of things. And what the national level uh, uh, databases also have, for example, We Was We, is a lot of information about the Dutch East India Company, which was very important, of course, for the international context uh, from the Netherlands and, and the connections with a lot of countries overseas. Great. Now, when somebody wants to get closer to the local level, maybe go a little deeper in their research, how are things structured in the Netherlands and, and what would be kind of the next step? We have three kinds of levels. So we have the national level, we have provincial levels, and we have municipalities. That means that sometimes um, you're lucky and um, a municipality has their own archives and they are specialized in their own local history and they offer a lot of records for that place. Nowadays, you see that a lot of municipalities choose to work together and have uh, a joint archive working for them. And that means that a website from one of these regional archives can provide information for several municipalities. One step higher, so that's in between municipality and national are the provinces. Um, some of those information centers have unique information and some of them also offer information that you could find on a local level because there are provinci provincial uh, archives and they have information from all the municipalities, all the towns and cities within their own borders. So there's lots of opportunity to, to go deeper into local types of records. And uh, I noticed there's even sites with newspapers and, you know, and, and I'm sure with some will need to use tools like Google Translate to work with them and others, like you said, they may have an interface. Um, many people have uh, website subscriptions at sites like Ancestry and MyHeritage. Do they have much in the way of Dutch records? Well, Ancestry and MyHeritage um, uh, offer Dutch collections. Um, wh what I want to emphasize is that most of these collections, they are indexes. Sometimes they are linked to images, but often they are just indexes that were created by third parties. For example, archives in the Netherlands. So volunteers over here made indexes. And then Ancestry or MyHeritage took that information because it's open data in the Netherlands and they added them to their own collections. Now, it's very useful for people who have a subscription for Ancestry or MyHeritage because they're able to link these records or index entries to the people that are in their family tree. Mm -hmm. So that's a big help, of course. Now, Family Search, on the other hand, is a different um, uh, type of information because they have their own large collection of images of civil records and population registers and church books. Um, sometimes volunteers from FamilySearch are creating indexes. So they have a very specific and very valuable collection of images of original records. Wow. Well, this is a terrific resource, this article that you wrote, and I know that you have a lot more detail in it. Those of you listening, you can check out the March and April 2020 issue of Family Tree Magazine. 
and you'll find John's article. It's called Going Dutch. And uh, it is a fantastic place to start if you have Dutch ancestors. And John, thank you so much for joining me all the way from the Netherlands. Thank you, Lisa. It was a pleasure to be here. Well, it's time to visit the editor's desk at Family Tree Magazine. And today we're going to check in with Rachel Fountain on just who you should be following on social media. Hi there, Rachel. Hi, Lisa. Good to talk to you. Great to have you back on the show. So Rachel, I see here in the uh, March, April 2020 issue of Family Tree Magazine, you've penned an article, it's called Fan Favorites. And in it, you're highlighting some of the top genealogy and history accounts on Facebook and Twitter and Pinterest and YouTube. So I'd love to have you start over at Pinterest, because that may be a social media platform that people don't always think about when it comes to genealogy. What do you recommend? Sure. Well, I love Pinterest. And I think you're right. I think it's really underused Mm -hmm. for genealogy, not just because of all the great accounts that it has, but also because Pinterest is a very powerful image search. So one kind of unique account that I mentioned in the article is the Museum at Fit, and that account uh, is full of boards for historical fashion, and the boards can get very specific. The more modern boards have images of clothing from, you know, 1800 to 1825, 1825 to 1850, so it's a really handy account to get visual references for different period clothing, which can be really helpful, you know, if you're trying to analyze a family photo or just learn more about, you know, what your ancestors might have worn. So that's one unique Pinterest account. And so this would be at Pinterest, P-I-N-T-E-R-E-S-T dot com slash museum at fit, F-I-T. And you're right. I, I love being able to reference old clothing. So it kind of helps us date the photographs that we're looking at in our own collections. And you said they have them organized in boards. They have lots of different imagery. And then the boards are like, I always think of them like bulletin boards, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Perfect. Any others at Pinterest we should really keep an eye on? So another great one is from an account called Fuzzy Ink Stationery, which is pretty cute. And this account is so perfect for anyone crafty. They have so many great projects that they pin to Pinterest from you know, DIY family history games to, you know, scrapbooking. You can even find ideas on there for family history postcards and and tons of uh, really unique family history crafts that Pinterest is just great for. I've seen so many interesting different projects they have. And a lot of times when you click through, they'll give you the instructions and everything. So it's kind of a, a fun DIY place. And I think that's kind of what they're known for Pinterest, don't you think? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And, you know, some pins are just pictures, but really what pins are, are ideas. So mm-hmm. Pinterest is a, it's a visual way to keep track of all the projects and all the ideas that you want to follow up on or that are interesting to you. Yeah, you can have your own boards as well as check out all of these uh, interesting ones that you've got here in the article. Now, Twitter is, obviously, it's been around quite a long time. And I tend to find that people are either totally into it, or they're not on it at all. So what are some of the accounts that you think would be of interest to people to kind of get them engaged in Twitter? 
Yes, I agree. Twitter can be uh, <laughs> it can be a tough one for people. It can seem pretty chaotic. Mm-hmm. If people are interested in Twitter, but they're you know intimidated by it, one thing that I'd recommend is to use um, Twitter lists. That's um, a really handy feature where you can organize your accounts, and it kind of streamlines Twitter and, and cuts down on some of the chaos that I think people associate with it. Now, are lists within your Twitter account, or is that like a separate platform that you use to uh, manage it? So it's within your Twitter account, actually. So mm-hmm. you can go in and create different lists for certain topics. For example, Family Tree has, our Twitter account has lists for uh, libraries and archives, um, genealogical societies. So you can go into that list and just see tweets from those accounts. Um, well, that's nice. You can kind of segment this ongoing feed. Yes, yes. Which, you know, for Twitter, I find very, very helpful. Mm-hmm. So in terms of um, actual accounts, my favorite on Twitter is the National Archives. They are very, very active on Twitter. They post very often, and it's usually uh, interesting historical facts and you know, information about how to use their, their services. Mm-hmm. Uh, one other thing that I really like about the National Archives on Twitter is they host a variety of events on Twitter, mostly their archives hashtag parties. <laughs> So for someone who doesn't know what a hashtag is, it's that, you know, what we usually call a number sign, that symbol, followed by a term. And all that does is it, if you put that hashtag in your tweet, it links it with a greater conversation. It's a way to associate tweets with each other. So what the National Archives will do is every once in a while, they'll have an archives hashtag party where they create a hashtag. For example, in October, they did hashtag archives ancestors. And they will invite people to share photos of their ancestors, things related to, you know, their ancestors' documents and records with the hashtag Archives Ancestors. And it's a fun way to just engage in a conversation, not only with the National Archives, but with everyone else who's using that hashtag. So it's a, it's a great way to engage. And I think it's, it exposes you to genealogists and a, and a section of genealogy that you wouldn't normally see. Right. And people who share your interest. Exactly. um, Exactly. I see here it says uh, there there was one back last fall, hashtag archives ancestors. They had hashtag ask an archivist day. So if you're listening and you're interested in checking out the National Archives on Twitter, it's twitter.com slash US Nat Archives. So not N-A-R-A, it's US Nat Archives. And we'll have links to these in the show notes. Very cool. So the article, they can find more accounts under Facebook, um, some YouTube accounts, uh, more under Twitter and Pinterest. The article is called Fan Favorites. And it is in the March, April 2020 issue of Family Tree Magazine. And before I let you go, Rachel, I, I wanted to chat with you about what's going on with Family Tree University, because I know there's a lot of courses starting up, particularly here in April of 2020 next month. Yeah, we've got some exciting things uh, coming up in terms of courses. Two highlights are we have a Scots-Irish course coming up, as well as a course on how to build your own family website. Oh, so, very cool. Now, that sounds daunting. They can teach you in in the course. By the end, you might have your own website up. Yes, ma'am. Very cool. Okay. So, Scots Irish and building your own website. I think every genealogist should have their own website. It's kind of like having your own massive message board, you know, and with Google these days, 
that's what people are doing. They're going out on Google and searching for things and your website could pop up. And then you have a message board all of your own to get the word out and connect with other researchers on your family lines. We'll have a link in the show notes to these Family Tree University courses. I know I'm enjoying teaching the Google Earth for Genealogists this month in March. And uh, you've got more coming up down the road in 2020? Absolutely. Yeah, those can be accessed at familytreemagazine.com backslash course. That's the place where you can see all of our upcoming courses, including the Scots Irish and the website building. Excellent. Well, and Rachel, of course, when we're talking about social media, Family Tree Magazine's on social media. How can folks follow Family Tree Magazine? Absolutely. So you can find Family Tree Magazine on Facebook, um, just at Family Tree Magazine. You can find us um, on Pinterest, Family Tree Magazine, and on Twitter, at Family Tree Mag. Magazine was a little too long for that username. So Family Tree Mag. (laughs) Perfect. Okay. Well, we'll have links to all that in the show notes as well. Great catching up with you, Rachel. Thank you so much. And we'll talk to you again soon in another podcast episode. Thanks so much, Lisa. Thanks so much for joining me for this March 2020 episode of Family Tree Magazine, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. If you would like details on many of the things that we talked about in this episode, you will find those at the show notes. And the show notes you will find at familytreemagazine.com slash podcasts. I'm Lisa Louise Cook. And of course, you can check out my genealogy podcast, the Genealogy Gems Podcast. It's available in all the podcasting services, as well as we have an app in your app store. Until next time, have fun climbing your family tree. (laughs) 